I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Emma Donoghue. Welcome to our shows, Emma. It's a real pleasure to have you with us today. So thank you for joining. Me too. Always happy to do anything Virago related. That's what we like to hear, the kind of Virago fan club out in uh, out in good support. It's like the, the loyal um, alumni of uh, a great school. I feel that way about Virago. Any of us who've ever been published by you, I feel we're always going to be Virago girls. <laughs> That's so nice to hear. And I think there is that kind of feeling on uh, all the people, the various authors I've spoken to on the podcast over the years, people who maybe, you know, kind of haven't had anything published that recently, but they still absolutely love it. And everyone wants, always wants to support Virago. So it's a brilliant, brilliant situation we're in. Um, well, I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware of um, Emma's many accomplishments, but just to run over a few of them. She was born in Dublin. Um, she's an award-winning writer today who lives in Canada, nominated for an Academy Award for adaptation of her Booker shortlisted international bestseller Room and recently co-wrote the Netflix film of her novel The Wonder, which I loved, I must admit. Um, she has a new novel, Learned by Heart, out this summer, which tells the long buried story of Anne Lister, better known today as Gentleman Jack, um, and her first love, Eliza Rain. Um, and the two women met as teenagers at boarding school in York in 1805. Emma's short story, Termagant, was recently published in the Virago Furies collection. We're going to talk a little bit more about Anne Lister and Eliza Rain later in the episode with some of the main questions. But so I want to start a little bit with the short story, if I may, Emma, which I really loved. It's a fascinating kind of period of history and you managed to cram so much into this very kind of short space. But I was absolutely thrilled at the end to find out that your fictional character in the story was actually based on a real woman. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit how you came to first learn about this real life Catherine Oliver and what made you want to write about her in the context of this particular collection? Oh, I'm hoping I can remember how I first came across <laughs> Catherine Oliver. I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by, by the history of the outsiders, basically. And that often means women's history. Yeah. And she, she probably showed up in something about early 20th century gay and lesbian history because she, she wrote a fan letter to Edward Carpenter. Basically saying, I've read your book and I think I want a girlfriend. How do I get a girlfriend? <laughs> and I there's no that. record of what advice he gave her, but we know that she wrote some small ads 
And again, I'm very interested in the sort of the, the personals and, you know, people bravely and yet euphemistically um, trying to find same sex relationships in the early 20th century through small ads. And it's a very poignant form, the small ad. So we, yeah. we know a couple of small ads that Kathleen Oliver sent. Um, and, and one of the most interesting things to me about her that emerged in my research for the short story is that before a certain date, there's no record of anyone by her name and she should show up in things like the census. And so, uh, you know, people often help me with my research. You know, I don't mean hired advisors. I mean, total strangers on the internet will be, you know, if I reach out to them on Twitter, they'll send me back sources overnight. So this wonderful genealogist found that because there's no record of Kathleen Oliver before a certain stage, she probably changed her name. And that mm. turned out to be a very formative detail. I already knew that she was angry about, um, she'd had a very middle-class upbringing, but her, her education had left her fit for nothing in particular. You know, she didn't get enough education or education that would help her really get a good job. So she worked as a domestic servant, bitterly resented it, and she set up the first union for domestic servants. Um, so she's, she's powered by anger. And I, I loved the idea that in changing her name, she was basically saying, get lost, daddy. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you, you left me helpless in the world with no daddy figure to look after me and yet no independence either. She was this marvelously crotchety figure. And um, I, I looked up, again, using the kind of amazing sources that are online only nowadays, um, in, in newspaper archives, I found lots of letters to the paper that she wrote banging on about everything from, you know, um, nuclear power, for instance, to animal rights. She worked for, for various animal shelters in, in London. You know, her, her miscellaneous rages were a wonderful source for me. <laughs> in, in deducing what might have gone on. And of course, the lovely contrast there is her search for love. You know, these small ads basically trying to find a, a fellow woman who would give her what she called comrade love. Yeah. Um, lovely contrast with the, the various furies that got her to write to the paper. <laughs> I found her so so interesting because, I mean, like I, for readers who haven't yet had the joy of reading the story, and I highly recommend it. So it begins during the First World War, doesn't it? And she's working as a domestic servant, um, but she's been edu- you know, self-educated and she has got a fiancé who she started writing to based on kind of ads that I presume were taken out during the First World War, kind of soldiers being asking for a, you know a lovely woman back home to write to them or whatever but obviously she doesn't want this man really when she realizes how sort of dull and boring he is. well one thing she said to carpenter was i've been engaged twice and it fell yes. through you know? so clearly she gave heterosexuality her best shot yes um and she was also lucky enough to get a, a marvelous employer who was a feminist and who gave her time off to go and take mm. courses um, at the at the college that then turned into the um, the old Vic Theatre, if, if memory serves me. So um, yeah, a marvelous fem- feminist employer who who agreed with her that really um, domestic service was full of humiliations. For instance, the domestic servants were always on call. You know, in the middle of the night, yeah. they could be suddenly brought down to bring you a hot cup of hot cocoa. So um, um, Catherine Oliver, because she'd come in from this more middle cl- class background. Um, with, you know, frustrated entitlement, you could say. She could really see the ways in which servants were being, um, um, you know, exploited. And she cast a really harsh light on it. And she organized this this major domestic servants union. So I found her very energizing to write about. She's incredible. I sort of, you know, I came away from that short story thinking, God, I want to read more about her. I don't know if anyone's written a full biography, but it seems like her life was so full. No, no one has. There have been a couple of useful essays and um, biographical dictionary entries, but that's it. I absolutely, as you can tell, I love writing about these obscure lives or lives that were once famous and since forgotten. I like nothing better than to kind of 
dig up the bodies, as it were, and, yeah. and give give credit where it's due. And above all, find these flavorful characters. That's it, isn't it? She's got a real flavour to her. And I love the way that you balance the tone of the story as well, that it starts out as this sort of, there's a sort of, um, at the beginning, it's very, uh, what do we say, sort of, you're going through the kind of, you know, you're describing this, the setting, you're describing the day of her, like, I get a real kind of textured sense of what it's like to be a servant at that period. And also this kind of added sense of her, the education that she's gone through and all these kind of things. And then by the end, it turns into this incredibly poignant really moving story about her search for love which I found sort of came out and took me by surprise and really sort of had me I don't know like yeah almost in tears by the final page so thank you well you know the short story as a form is just superb the 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 forced condensing of 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 lives and feelings into a short space and I love it when Virago does these anthologies because Mm -hmm. I I think that the sort of the wider community of Virago authors is very full of variety and yet there's there's enough in common that these collections have a great kind of thematic unity and this is a particularly good one yeah, I know. It's sort of wonderful and you get such a scope of different stories, but at the same time, like you say, it kind of pulls together as this whole. And also I was thinking, you know, it makes such a, it was really fascinating to look at your short story alongside, um, you know, your new novel, Learned by Heart, which like I say, we're going to talk a little bit more about later. But this idea that you're doing something similar in both, you're taking these stories of women who've been sidelined over the years and maybe haven't been given their due and kind of reanimating them. But it's fascinating that you can do that in both the short story form and the novel. Um, these two very kind of separate, uh, you know, I was just wondering, is there, I suppose there are joys to each and there are limitations to each and kind of, you know, different things that you get out of um, doing it in these different forms, right? That's true. And the and the joys and limitations are about their reception as much as their writing. Um, okay. For instance, when I'm writing a short story, it doesn't feel small. It's, it's, it's big enough that I'm fully immersed in it. Yes. And then I climb out and sometimes I'm then disappointed by the fact that there are a lot of readers out there who, who won't go for a collection of short stories. I, mm. I think there's slightly more of an acquired taste or a literary taste um so i would say novels have a cultural reach i mean there are exceptions of course the occasional short story goes all the way as it were but but novels generally will reach more people but then as soon as i started writing films i realized oh there's lots of people (laughs) who never pick up a book and they might see a film and then again you make a film with netflix and you realize oh there's people who never go to the cinema to see the indie movie but they'll see something on netflix so so uh, all these forms of different cultural reach but i'm still thrilled to write a short story and uh, when when it comes up and to find those readers who are fervent enough that they will seek out this kind of form because it's it's, it's gloriously compact isn't it and often very poignant you know yes. short stories they 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 end before you could possibly have had enough of those people exactly and I think a good short story I mean I think I was one of those people for many years I was a little bit snobbish about short stories I mean partly I think because I read some that really weren't incredibly good and then when I started reading really good short stories and realizing what kind of you know authors can do with them like you say these entire worlds that open up and I must admit I had never thought about what you just said just then about of course the I might say it's sort of a smaller form a kind of slimmer form than the novel but to you the world is just as real and just as wide and vast right when you're writing about a character whether it's you know the character of a short story or the character of a Netflix film right that kind of has to be alive in your head in the same way with the same vivid and the vibrancy that's right and um you know often you have to do really just as much research because you still need the full range of facts about somebody's (laughs) life before you can choose what to pluck out of it 
Um, so I might have to go back to Catelyn Oliver because she is she's interesting out of all proportion to the short story. <laughs> she really is. I'd love to read more about her, particularly in the sort of, you know, the, the, the voice and that you managed to capture here. So that's one vote from me so far for that. And I'm sure plenty of others <laughs> from our Virago readers. Um, anyway, as I say, we're going to talk about uh, I'm sure you know she'll come up in conversation a little bit later. But let's move into our main questions now then. So first up, Emma, I've asked you to think about a couple of books that are currently on your bedside table. First, I'm going to name a book of short stories, in fact, um, the, the late, great Angela Carter, who's, mm. you know, every book is so stunning that I keep thinking if we if she had lived to be 90, what would you produced, you know? But anyway, we have to be grateful for what we got, I suppose. So this is a book of hers I'd never come across until, you know, I found it on somebody's shelf this summer, Black Venus from 1985. And they are historical short fiction, which is a form I work in quite a lot. And mm. she just leaves me in awe of not only how much story and character she can fit into each, but such such flavor, such astonishing atmosphere. So she's got one story in there about Lizzie Borden, for instance, oh. which not only makes you understand why Lizzie Borden might have picked up that axe and killed her father and stepmother, but, you know, you're eager to help her by the end. <laughs> but the atmosphere is so strong. And um, she's got one extraordinary one about Baudelaire's lover. They, the story is just, just, you know, reek of sensuality and of, of flavor. So I, I just don't know anyone like Angela Carter. And again, her novel are probably more famous but I, I found her short stories hugely influential her um, The Bloody Chamber for instance when I started writing sort of you know revisionist fairy tales it was all because of Angela Carter those, so those ones I would say are, are absolutely stunning yeah that's a brilliant recommendation and then my non-fiction pick this, this is going to sound dreadfully nepotistical um, but um, my my partner of 29 years, Chris Rolston, um, she and Caroline Gonda have just brought out the first book of essays about Anne Lister. Mm. Um, anyone who's who's uh, seen any of Gentleman Jack on, on BBC or HBO um, will have come across this extraordinary character, but she was basically wrote the longest diary in the English language, about five million words. And her, I say secret diaries because they were half written in code. Um, they have been gradually emerging from obscurity, partly through crowdsourced research. It's an extraordinary example of where the fans of, of a phenomenon, such as the Gentleman Jack series, have actually mm. sort of signed up to, to help, um, you know, expand the sources. So hundreds, oh, really? of, hundreds of volunteer codebreakers known as the Lister Sisters have been looking at scans of these diary pages and transcribing them. And it's been an amazing kind of virtuous feedback loop because um, usually a fandom, I would say, waits, you know, passively or eagerly or even occasionally crankily for the products of, mm. of some pop culture phenomenon. But in this case, they're actually they're actually helping. Um, anyway, so so this collection that um, Chris and Caroline have brought out called Decoding Anne Lister from the archives to Gentleman Jack. So it, it really marks, I would say, a, a coming of age for for Anne Lister studies. Um, because uh, it's the first time that we've got a whole collection of scholarly essays about every aspect of, of the Anne Lister phenomenon, from the diary to um, her code to, uh, you know, her, her life in, in Yorkshire and Halifax, you know, muscling into to local societies, um, her, her, her business endeavors, coal mining and so forth, uh, her travels. Um, she, she was the first to climb various mountains. So she, she was a rule breaker in many areas, quite apart from seducing about a dozen women. Um, so <laughs> I think it's, it's long overdue. And, you know, I've been a huge fan of Anne Lister since um, that first Virago book that I came across, um, mm. Helena Whitbread's I Know My Own Heart, um, 
which I came across back in 1990. So to see Lister's studies sort of coming of age in this way, is it's long overdue and it's, it's so exciting. I think I had no idea about how the extent, I mean, I was aware of the Virago book, uh, the, the ver, they've published various volumes of her diaries, I think, over the years. And I was aware of the TV show. I've seen episodes of that. But I had no idea that there was so much still to sort of be translated, as it were, like, you know, from the code. Is that there's still a lot then that they haven't quite mastered or they, they haven't? They, we have a raw, tra- a raw transcription of all the diaries, but the diaries are only the beginning of it because we have a huge collection of her letters as well. I say we, sorry, I mean, I mean, the, the scholarly world uh, could be said to have these things. They're all yeah, in Yorkshire yeah. in the archives. Um, but so so thousands of letters and she kept um, sort of reading journals too. She, um, she you know, summaries of what she was reading and um, travel notes. So it's a vast, vast course. Corpus. And um, uh, from, from my novel in particular, for Learned by Heart, there were about 100 letters that I desperately needed that hadn't been transcribed. And I asked and 14 volunteers transcribed them for me. No. So it's an extraordinary, um, generous kind of uh, circle, I would say. All these strangers I've never met in person who made it possible for me to write my novel. That's incredible. I didn't. And yes, I can't think of another situation off the top of my head where that well like you say that the the fans have actually been that involved in the process or it's sort of yeah I mean with something like Game of Thrones I believe the fans write you know angry hate mail to George yeah. Laura Martin saying finish the series <laughs> yeah it's sort of threatening rather than kind of helpfully exactly. or you know Beyonce's way. fans again will pour down hatred on anyone who says a word against her but yes. but the, the Anne Lister fans are actually helping bring the the dusty old papers into the light how astonishing and what an interesting community as well made up of so many different people so you've got academics in it you've got writers like oh, yeah at the conferences are... you get people in top hats doing cosplay yeah wonderful <laughs> mix <laughs> it sounds like an incredible world i need to dive into it more just for you know sort of entertainment and kind of uh you know scholarly value it sounds like yeah wow okay well i guess you know the what the 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 diaries that are published by virago are the place to start but they're clearly not this place to end in this situation we need to get our hands on this decoding and lister it sounds wonderful um brilliant that's a great recommendation and many of our listeners i'm sure will be gentleman jack fans it's a very popular tv show and i should say that helena whitbread whose collection i know my own heart started the whole thing off and um, she, far from gatekeeping, Helena is a sort of a, you know, spiritual mother to this entire community. She's, she's enormously really? welcoming of the fans. She's, oh, she, she, she brought me to the, the archives in Yorkshire and she sort of decoded the diaries right in front of me and she showed me around Shipton Hall. So she welcomes everybody's wow. energies and everybody's endeavors rather than trying to kind of hog it herself. So she is, she's That's- most beloved. That's and, so important. you know, full kudos to Virago for publishing this book now, back in 1988 when, when there were a lot of bristling and hostile reactions or even people saying this, this has to be a hoax. You know, no, no woman wrote in detail yeah. about lesbian sex back then. So, so it was not, you know, easily welcomed. Um, so uh, Helena Whitbread and Virago between them, I would say, founded Lister Studies. That's incredible. Well, she's sort of got the, it's right, isn't it, sort of tagline, the first modern lesbian, because she was the first person writing about uh, putting her experiences down on the page. Am I correct? Or yeah, Not just her experiences, but her identity. She mulled a lot over, you know, uh, how how she'd been born this way and she used she used elements of say the kind of you know romantic persona like you know I'm special and unique there's no one like me in the world (laughs) 
Brigitte Rousseau, that kind of thing. So she 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 used these these elements from cultural history to sort of make herself this this proud identity, not just mm. as a lesbian as we'd now call it, but really as as a kind of gender nonconformist as well. And um, she saw herself as being masculine or as like a husband to these women, but she said she didn't actually want to be a man because then she'd be cut off from the society of girls. So you know she 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 founded this really interesting. Um, and quite, um, you know, ambiguous identity. In, in, and she, she mulled over, chewed over its details in a way that you'd expect more on TikTok nowadays than in a diary in the 1810s. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds very much like sort of um, a much more modern way of kind of contemplating sexuality and kind of queer identity than you would, than, you know, years and year, hundreds of years before that. Exactly. Sort of- I don't think her dozen girlfriends were doing much fretting over their identity. They just yeah. taken it in stride like, oh, this astonishing person has seduced me. Oh, well. <laughs> um, but she was, yes, explicitly modern in her in her interest in her own identity. Yeah, she, she was, you know, self-conscious in the most um, interesting way and but also hugely confident. So she didn't stop even when, you know, the, the local... Um, um, the locals in Yorkshire, at one point, they burned her and her, her partner, um, Anne Walker, in effigy, you know, because they resented these women's interference in local politics. So, oh you know, she got God. plenty of hostility. She got nasty, nasty um, hoax small ads put in the local paper calling yeah. her man. Um, so, so lots of hostility and it didn't stop her. Wow, incredible. She's definitely someone to kind of, you know, someone we can learn from today, it sounds like, and continue to learn from with these Mm -hmm. so much information there. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation. Um, Next up then, could you tell me about a recent podcast, TV show or article that's made you think in particular? Yes, I'm going to go for Barbie. This is not an unusual choice. Um, <laughs> no, you're the first person on the show, though. You know, oh, no good, good. On the show, so go for it, it. It's not that I think the Barbie film is perfect because you know it it, it has to do some mutually irreconcilable jobs right it has to do product placement and sell barbie dolls and and be approved of by mattel Um, and it has to uh greta gerwig and noah baumbach have made sure that it does feminism as well but i think what's astonishing is that because it's such a shiny glitzy popular and funny cultural product it will get the eight-year-olds you know i think and and it's it's full of you know um, it, it analyzes patriarchy. It analyzes all sorts of um, feminist concepts, and it, it 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 gives it enough sugar to sweeten the medicine. So I really think that this um, film will be a kind of cultural earworm, which will make feminism, um, you know, not just fashionable, but kind of just a, a routine part of the intellectual equipment of of small children. Um, I, I can't think of a better example of trickle down feminism, and in particular, there's this great speech by America Ferrara um, about the sort of you know, impossible demands put on modern women, and the, the, the you know the pressure to be exceptional yet normal. And um, I, I think it does a hugely good job. Mm. So fascinating because when you when you picked this and I started thinking about it, I realised that I'd read. It rather embarrassing. I think I'm the only person who hasn't seen the film yet. So I, so I still have that joy to come. I'm definitely going to go and see it, though. Um, but I realised that I'd been reading so much criticism about it, kind of good, bad, interesting, you know, some of it really intelligent, some of it not so much. But I had actually read very little that was considering it as a film for children. It was much more kind of people intellectualising about it as adults going to watch it. And I hadn't really thought about what the effect would be on very young well, much younger, you know, women and I suppose young boys as well, like any kind of young Absolutely. child. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, that's kind of the thing. Of that. I think for many of them, it'll be the first time they come across concepts like patriarchy. And I particularly like I particularly like that the story takes seriously the the appeal and the attraction of patriarchy. You know, there's this mm. subplot where where Ken 
thinks, oh, cool, maybe I could get to be the boss. So I think it's, <laughs> it's lovely that the film actually looks at that head on rather than presenting patriarchy as a self-evident evil, you know. Um, yeah. And um, I, I think it's, yeah, I suppose the reason people have been talking about its effect on adults is that they're kind of amused by the novelty of, you know, grown men. I saw mm. some comedy skit about two grown men, you know, bros, recognizing each other and each of them denying that they were at Barbie and pretending they were going to see Oppenheimer, you know. But, um, you know, I think actually a huge number of children will go see it and and it'll it'll mark their minds, yeah. I'm a big Greta Gerwig fan. I really, I love the idea of it. I want to see it. I think it was always going to be one of those films that sort of people want to write about, people want to sort of pick holes in or really embrace I think that's you know you have to take all the criticism with a little bit of salt, um, and uh, but no, yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled and I feel you know, like I need the to anecdote take a I love is, is that Mantel asked to approve the script and she was like, no, no, I'm an artist, <laughs> so she wrote them a little poem about it, but she would not provide the script. <laughs> good honor and of course you know we're in the middle of the writer's strike so a, a lot of us are more aware than ever of how downtrodden writers are collectively so mm. to hear of a story of someone sort of standing up to their corporate overlords is very comforting right now yeah i was going to say since writing with the wonder was that the first time you'd written a film script and um, no my film script for room was oh um, sorry of course you had room as well but what once you sort of once you sort of you know um uh, dipped your toe in this world does it make you it must make you sort of look at films afresh when you go and see them are you more aware of what the kind of again the sort of limitations on the writing or the you know what someone could have yes done moments it? where where somebody probably you know <laughs> chopped a bit off a screenplay and and there's a gap that doesn't make sense yeah I'm very aware that no screenplay unless you're the writer director author mm. and no screenplay makes it through unscathed you know with our old uh, cuts and changes but you know a film is just inherently collaborative and I really enjoy it myself because I, you know my fiction world is the one I get to sort of rule um, um my own tiny little queendom um, and so when I do a film or even a play um I'm, I'm opening up to collaboration and if I'm rewriting one of my works in this new form again it doesn't really belong to me anymore it's all all the ideas are welcome you know so the costume people the the, the set designers as well as the directors as well as the producers they all take the story in new ways that are that are um trying to highlight the the the, the new um possibilities of that form so in the case of something like the wonder or room you know it becomes a much more visual story so a whole other set of pleasures are offered um so I'm actually I'm getting more and more relaxed about the process because I realize I can't control every word and often what ends up really moving those viewers won't be the words anyway it'll be the pictures that have been inspired by the words so it's a it's a very it's a um, it's a very interesting form in that so many people are involved and um, you can't possibly, you know, cling to your power. <laughs> you, know, if you don't enjoy the sociability of the whole thing um, then, then don't get into it, you know, just just sell rights in your book and walk away. But I really do enjoy the process. How fascinating. And it sounds like you, you have a sort of generosity of spirit there as well in letting that that you're the novel that you've worked so hard on and sort of been in that world. And like you say, it's the world that you sort of, you can rule over entirely and then you have to give it over to other people. And I can imagine that's a sort of daunting process at first, but yeah, it sounds like it's also quite liberating for you in a way. Yeah, because these are extras. You know, if, I, if I've if i done something as a novel, then if we do it again as a film or a play, you know, it's it's just, it's it's the jam on top. Um, mm. I'm, I'm misusing a metaphor from there, haven't I? Well, what do you put jam on top of? You know? uh, I'm the thinking cherry, cherry. You're thinking cherry, cherry on top. The cherry yes. on top, yes. <laughs> cherries and jam. That's I think you could also say, ooh, that's jam. Can't you like the letter? Yeah. That's a delicious extra. <laughs> that's clearly from some working class culture where there was no jam in the first place. Yes. Exactly. Brilliant. But you know, I, I'm not always generous in spirit. I get a bit bitter about how many film and TV projects never make it to, 
to the filming point. And it's really... a very high, um, not kill rate, but, but death rate in projects mm-hmm. because it all costs so much money. So, oh, you know, the, the large chunks of my life that I've put into projects that have never made it off the page. Um, and that that's just a sad fact about film and TV, whereas most of my fiction is almost all of my fiction has been published. So so that's, again, very satisfying to me. Yeah, that's a strange scenario. I think I remember once coming across a sort of a screenwriter who you know, was able to make their entire living by screenwriting, but they never had anything yeah. actually made. And I couldn't, yes. I couldn't get my head like around that. it. Yeah, I know. I would find it such a frustrating life. Yeah. Mm. Like, I don't and know, I, being sort of locked in a basement and everything you do is burned at the end of the day. You know? yeah. <laughs> that would kill me. <laughs> Well, I guess particularly for you, because you come from, you know, you published novels and short stories and all sorts beforehand. So you were very used to seeing the, the kind of the process of the work and it being out in the world at the end of yeah, it. Yeah, and move that's into the direction that. of, of readers getting in touch and, and yes. or, or directly reading to them at book events, for instance. There's nothing like feeling that you have touched or intrigued or moved or amused people you've never met before you know it's it's it, that's a thrill i never get i never get tired of oh it's wonderful our shall be back in just a moment i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scores and I'm talking to Emma Donoghue about the thrill of getting to see your work in readers' hands and hear their responses to it. Um, Next up, Emma, could you tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? Yes, um, this has been a massive bestseller, so people might know it well. It's um, Caroline Criado Perez's Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. What I love about this book is, and what makes me go back to it, is that it's it's so concrete and fact-based, and it really is about data. So, you know, as, as someone who sort of grew up on feminism from my teens on, I sometimes get a bit sick of the same kind of, you know, abstract analysis of, of patriarchy and so on. But um, if I think of Caroline Criado Perez's book, I think of things like, you know, the average phone having been designed for a man's hand. So it can be hard for women to take a picture one handed. Um, mm-hmm. I think of every time I get in the car, I think about the fact that the placement of the steering wheel is more likely to crush my chest than a male driver's chest. You know, So she's yeah. very concrete about things like um, not just physical objects, but, um, you know, the, the scheduling and, and placement of buses, for instance, um, will, will typically be, be set up for men to get to work rather than 
than for the woman at 1030 to drop off her child while bringing her mother to the hospital, you know. So so she analyzes many different fields um, and, and ways in which um, what she's always banging on about is, is that we need sex disaggregated data, you know. So uh, it's so frustrating if you re- read an article about a health breakthrough and at the end it'll suddenly say this was only tried out on healthy men between 20 yeah. and 30, you know. <laughs> Or even, you know, when when pregnant women were wanting the COVID vaccine and there was just no evidence yet on whether it was safe for them. Um, So so it's a wonderfully scientific book. It's it's angry. It's funny. And she does a a superb newsletter as well, which I've been following ever since. And um, I think I think she's part of a of a generation who've managed to refresh feminism by really tying it to um, very scientific thinking and and very, very modern topics. Um, You know, um, she, she's great. She's great on, on on things as they arise, things like AI um, mm. or, or breakthroughs in healthcare. Um, so so yeah, I hugely recommend Invisible Women. Yeah, I think I had a very similar response to you when reading it. That I um, I sort of sometimes I get a bit sort of you know tired of so many books about feminism sort of coming out and work out which ones do I want to read, which ones do I not want to. But this, it was exactly that. The data in it was so compelling and all these elements that I just never even thought of. That thing about the buses, I remember there was that chapter on the fact the sort of city planning and she goes down, she drills down into such details about where bus stops are, like where people are on the streets and what. And I just, I'd never even considered this as a world. And this is a world in which I move around, you know, as a woman. So yeah, and she she gives you like a pair of glasses as as it were to wear and then you can yes. read new situations yourself so the other day I saw uh I think where was I I've just come back from Europe so I think I was in London and there were ads on the tube for an app sponsored by Budweiser which is all about you know choose a safer way home it's like a sort of special Google Maps for women that shows you a safer way to walk home and I'm thinking don't just tell us which routes are typically a bit safer you know change the routes that aren't safer yes. if it's about things like street lighting um, um, or you know nearby emergency phones or something then then change those things don't just act as if this is how the world happened to grow you know this is the way this is, these are ways in which the world was designed for men. So, so I would say that was a that was a Caroline Criado Perez moment. So, yeah. just as we now think about the say the the Bechdel test when we're looking at a a film which is full of men, I, I think similarly, Invisible Women is a great kind of perspective on all sorts of new situations as they arise. Mm, absolutely, I hadn't. Yes, I didn't sort of put the two together, but of course, and that idea that she really is interrogating. The little, you know, the sort of everything that society is built on in this kind of uh, yeah, very, the nitty gritties, exactly the nitty gritty, and in such a such a kind of concrete way that you can't. There's no, there's no sort of situation in which you could read that book and ever argue with it or ever think that it was nothing, you know. But it's just solid fact, right? And that's what's yeah, hard. Yeah, that's there's right. A, and there's a real cleverness to that as well because you can't then kind of you know take issue with it because all she's doing is presenting you with this kind of myriad of facts that are evidence of this you know horrific sexism in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Um, I must sign up to that newsletter as well. I wasn't aware of that, so thank you for the uh, thank you for the. Tip. And she manages to be very funny too. Yes, she always That's has true. a bit of a default male of the week. You know, as she names and shames some oh, really or scientist. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds perfect. A little bit more fun. Um, next up, then Emma, you're going to tell me about a person or a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire, and I think we're going to be able to talk a little bit about your new book here, aren't we? Yes, my my new book, it's funny, I've been, 
ever since I encountered Anne Lister back in um, about 1990 through Helena Whitbread's volume with Farago, um, I've been obsessed by her. You know, I'm like one of many, I'm like one of Anne Lister's many discarded girlfriends, you know, can't shake her. <laughs> so um, I, I wrote my first play as a loose She'd love that. I get the she would. She would. Even that. if I'm a, a commoner and an Irish woman and many other things she wouldn't approve of, she would still love that. Um, so, so yeah, I wrote my first play as a very loose adaptation of, of that book. Um, but I was always fascinated by the, the kind of backstory, the bit before the diary. She only started the diary in her 20s, really. And um, she only started it as a sort of consistent daily writing. Um, but her first love um, at 14 at boarding school was Eliza Rain. And I was always intrigued by this because Eliza Rain and she had this blazing affair at school. And then Anne went on to great things and Eliza ended up in the asylum. So so I was always intrigued by it. And But so little was known about Eliza Rain. And so over the years, I was always sort of keeping an eye out. Surely somebody's going to write a great book about Eliza Rain. And I was waiting and waiting. And eventually I thought, I have to write a novel about her myself. But I thought that the novel would, would toggle between between Anne Lister's point of view and Eliza Rain's point of view. But what really has surprised me when I sat down to write it was that it ended up being all Eliza's perspective. And partly because Anne Lister has become better known herself and she's been able to have her say through through her diary and through the the Gentleman Jack series, which is about her in her 40s. Superb work by Sally Wainwright. Um, But also partly because Eliza Rain more and more strikes me as as a a criminally neglected figure. She is such an interesting... um, perspective on Regency society because she was basically a a biracial orphan heiress. Um, Her father worked for the East India Company as a surgeon. And like many, you know, British white guys in India, he had children with a local woman in a sort of informal country marriage. And then, you know, basically sent the kids back to England. Um, These men sometimes just abandoned their children or sometimes they left the boys there and they brought the girls back. So Eliza and her sister Jane were were packed off to England alone. Um, uh, She was six and was completely cut off from her Indian side, such that we don't know anything about her mother. Her mother just shows up in the sources as Dr. Rain's woman. Um, wow. and, and a small pension specified. Um, her, her mother and father died fairly soon. So Eliza and Jane were there in England with fortunes and yet with nothing nothing else. You know, they didn't have a loving family. They had um, a guardian, a local doctor, and they went to a series of boarding schools, but, but you know, didn't have, didn't have that emotional safety. And above all, they'd been so cut off from their Indian side. Eliza doesn't record anything about it. We don't know was, the back, was her background Muslim or Hindu. We don't know anything about uh, any ethnic group that she was affiliated with or any other relatives. So she was really, she's a, she's a real sort of victim of the colonial process, you know, sent off to England with money in the bank. She and, oh. and Jane each had £4,000, which was a huge lump of money. And yet they would have been known to be um, illegitimate and they were visibly biracial. And so, you know, what what an ambiguous position. Um and Eliza herself only mentions race once in all her letters. I found one mention where she calls herself a young lady of color. And um, she, she again, only mentioned being illegitimate once. So she mostly just didn't talk about these things and acted as if she was just like every other posh white girl. Um, but she must have been constantly aware of people looking at her, people seeing her as different. Yeah. Um, so she just is, is this fascinating perspective on, on society and on Anne Lister. And, and their love story is so... Is so moving to me as it emerges from this, um, you know, a few dozen letters, because basically they were both madly in love at school and they, they had this secret relationship. They, they happened to be assigned to the same attic room. 
um, called The Slope. And we know this because Eliza, the first thing we have in her handwriting is this list of where everybody slept in the school, which to me is a classic kind of sign of, of someone who was self-conscious and nervous and really you know, wanted to be clear about the power relations and the affiliations within this small school. So she recorded that she and Anne were in um, The Slope. And I decided to set my whole novel during during this year that they spent in, in boarding school at the at King's Manor in York in 1805. And I also include letters from, from 10 years farther on, because as I say, you know, the, the affair marked them both so much, but in Anne's case, it sort of fueled her 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 pursuit of women for life. It sort of set her off on this <laughs> glorious lesbian career, as it were. And in Eliza's case, it it you know, it, it broke her. She was left absolutely hung up on Anne Lister for the rest of her life and 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 her mental health really fell apart in her 20s. And her letters are so yearningly nostalgic and sad and always longing for those days when she and Anne were everything to each other. Mm. Um, so so it's an irresistible historical source to me. And um, yes, so, so the product is this novel learned by heart. What an incredible story. And as you say, there's so there's only a very small amount of letters that exist from her to Anne or from Anne to her. Is that right? That's right. Because, um, yeah, she was without family and she, she ended up in an asylum and nothing of hers was preserved. So, you know, she, we know that she had sort of diamond rings and a lovely Moroccan writing case. And, um, you know, but but all the trace that was ever left of her was the letters that she sent to Anne, who who only preserved some of them. So, yeah, we have, relatively speaking, a a handful. Um, and as I say, I couldn't have found these letters um, except that these volunteers transcribed them for me. <laughs> this was during COVID, so I couldn't even get to, to oh, wow. um, Halifax to the archives. And also, to be honest, I can't read early 19th century handwriting. I'm not good at this stuff. Um, yeah. So the archives scanned the letters and this group of 14 code breakers, um, you know, uh, sent them on to me letter by letter. It was, it was like getting, you know, emails from the past. It was yeah, just it must thrilling. have been wonderful like that. But I'm fascinated to know then what if you say that, so you've been aware of obviously Eliza's presence in Anne's life for a while, and she's obviously been on your sort of periphery of your imagination, of your kind of mind. What was it that made you think, okay, now is the time, now I've got to write about this? Because you said earlier, you know, you're waiting for someone else to do it, and then you realise actually, no, it's you, you're the one <laughs> to write a story. I mean, plenty of us could write about her. It's, it's not like one book you know, ticks the box. And um, I, one thing that made me feel I had to was uh, um, actually back in 1998, I had a two month residency at the University of York as a creative writer. And mm. Chris, my partner, she had a residency at the um, Center for 18th Century Studies, which turned out to be in the glorious old buildings of King's Manor. And, and when we realized that this was the boarding school where Anne and Eliza had met, I, I did oh, wow. feel a kind of you know, hairs on the back of my neck went up. But I mean, that was back in 1998. So clearly it's yeah. still taken me a long time. I think I just wasn't quite sure of the angle because Anne's life is so long and rich and, and well represented through the diaries. You know, the last thing I would want to do is a novel which just sort of you know, paraphrased her diaries. So I was mulling for a long time over how I wanted to do it and whether it would be more Eliza's or Anne's perspective. And really, it was only when in about 2015, I did a research trip to York and, and Helena Whitbread showed me around Shipton and the archives and stuff. And, and only then did it start to come into focus for me that, yes, I was going to commit entirely to to the boarding school year and let the novel be contained in that way that classic boarding school novels are. I don't even follow them home on holidays. I, I stay locked up in the building, as it were, yeah. um, and in the grounds. And, and, and I try and capture the ways in which a, an institution like that 
could be, you know, hellish in some ways. And um, I decided that it probably had an elaborate system of, of micro punishments and micro rewards, as these schools often did. But also, it could be a bit of a heaven too, a real community, a real a world of girls. And um, even before, um, two of the girls fell madly and secretly in love. Um, so sometimes all I can say is it can take a long time to make those key decisions about who tells the story and from what point of view and at what moment they tell the story. Mm. And then was it like actually quite a sort of godsend in a way that there were there was so few there was so little information maybe about her compared to someone I can. Does that give you as the writer free reign to do quite a lot with it? Or because if there's too much information, surely then you have that worry that you just articulated about maybe paraphrasing or kind of you know going yeah like I don't know how the late great Hilary Mantel did such a a fresh job of writing about Thomas Cromwell how she waded through the sources about about Henry VIII's court and made a fiction that feels so fresh I don't know Mm -hmm. I love those books and because yes writing about something where you're overwhelmed by sources can be exhausting um it's funny, I would say generally, if I'm writing about somebody who's utterly forgotten, then having very few sources is a great help. So my first historical novel, which I did with Farago and uh, Letty Goodings, uh, Slammerkin, was inspired by, you know, one tiny paragraph about an execution. And um, so that that that's an ideal situation. In the case of Eliza Rain, because by the time I was writing it, there was this real scholarly community building up around Anne Lister and all Anne Lister's lovers. I actually felt a huge obligation to work within the facts, even facts that might emerge soon. So I did didn't feel, oh, I'm going to invent wholesale some past for Eliza. I really tried to to, to follow my own rules and, and stick with what we knew. So I decided Eliza would plausibly have forgotten a huge amount about India if nobody ever talked about it. Because I'm so aware with my own kids, when we go and spend, a, say, a year at a time in France and then back to Canada, we do a huge amount of, of, dis- of talking about the other place when we're in um, the, the home place wow. and showing them photos and we really create those memories and rework them um, and in Eliza's case I think people wouldn't have mentioned in India again it would have been this you know sealed up past in a very traumatic way um, so so yeah I was really trying to um, to work within the facts and, and often I had to sort of change things in my draft as we went along as more emerged so I've never worked with a scholarly source that was constantly changing and more and more emerging so I was I was reaching out to say um uh, Carol Adlam is writing biography of of Eliza Rain now so I was you know I was swapping data with her and with half a dozen others um so so it's it's, it's a bit scary trying to write a fiction um in the middle of a, a kind of you know rise in scholarly studies on something but it was great fun too because I felt I had company and I felt that the novel ended up being in some way crowdsourced in a way uh, I couldn't say about any of my other books yeah, that's really interesting. And that idea of a sort of it's not, you know, the writing isn't collaborative, but the research and the sort of community that's behind it is definitely built on that. And, and yes, other and, and, and such being able generosity. to share sources. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. The generosity I met was just amazing. I mean, I remember one guy, I, I asked him something on Twitter and he like sent me back a transcription of the letter, you know, by by return of DM. <laughs> this is incredible. What an amazing community out there. People mm-hmm. always talk, I feel like people always talk about the sort of bad size of Twitter, but then you see these moments of real kind of community and, and sort of comradeship on it. That, that, Absolutely. And things that you, like you say, you just couldn't have access to the material. If you oh, especially have, you during know. COVID. There was, this yeah. was just a lifeline. Yeah. One particular, one particular person, um, a, an Irish genealogist called San Ricken, um, she, she answered my queries over the course of a year. And um, really the characters in the book who are the, the 
schoolmates of Anne and Eliza and one of their teachers, if they have any sort of vividness as characters, it's because of facts that, that Sam managed to dig up for me. She found me, for instance, um, this letter that one of their teachers, Miss Lewin, wrote to the Irish playwright Arthur Murphy. And it's a gem of a letter. It, it describes how she and her woman partner moved up from, from Hampstead to Yorkshire um, to work in the school. And it, it describes um, how the school was this ramshackle building with a granary in one corner and a, a pig living in one of the downstairs rooms. So, you know, <laughs> uh, this, this teacher would be lost to history except for this letter, which, which Sam found for me. And it, it enabled me to write several scenes in which this, you know, this, this lesbian teacher of theirs is really fleshed out. So I'm so grateful. Incredible, incredible. Um, and talking of school uh, novels that are set in schools and that sort of hothouse atmosphere, that kind of brings us on to our final question and your last answer today. We've asked everyone this year to all our guests on the podcast to pick a particular golden apple from the Virago backlist, a sort of gem that you would recommend to others. And you've picked a really interesting modern classic that I think a lot of people might have forgotten. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, what, what I'm most um, you know appreciative appreciative in, in Virago's uh, backlist, as it were, is is the really obscure ones. Um, mm. So number 142 in the modern classics is Evelyne Mayer's I Will Not Serve. Um, it was her only novel. Uh, she, she took her own life after she wrote it. It was posthumously published in 1958. Virago dug it up in 1984. You know, it's the kind of thing I think would have been utterly forgotten by now if Virago hadn't, hadn't um, done the kind of research and cultural curation needed. Um, and it's, it's published with a foreword by um, Antonia White. And it's, it's, it's this wonderful, intense kind of cri de coeur by this young woman who's fallen madly in love with, with um, a nun in her school and uh, has ended up in a mental hospital and is, is writing all her, her, her exalted love and her craziness and her distress. Um, and, and, you know, it, it shouldn't really work because there's not much plot, but. <laughs> It does. You just you hear this voice coming at you. And um, it's an absolute beauty. I will not serve. It's got a beautiful voice. I read it relatively recently myself. And I sort of it's got that very kind of heightened, slightly kind of over the top, very passionate, hysterical feel to it, which in a sense you think will be too much. But it's her voice, right? It's the voice of this kind of this very kind of um, sort of almost hysterically kind of passionate schoolgirl um, and then all these wonderful scenes against the sort of bohemian backdrop of Paris the sort of you know jazz cafes and things like that it's, it's a really really lovely kind of strange book though as well and you could see it in various traditions um, in the sort of, you know, girl interrupted, you know, yeah. tale from the madhouse kind of line and the boarding school book, the, the coming of age novel, something like um, Sylvia Platt's The Bell Jar. Um, I mean, it's it, it's at the center of a sort of a Venn diagram of, of interesting fictional forms, I think. Yeah, it really is. Do you remember when you first read it? Is there a sort of moment? Can you? No, I don't. Not? No. I don't. I'm always interested where people pick up these, like, especially the Viragos that are sort of have fallen out of print over the years, like this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant. I will hopefully, maybe it will be all back into print soon, or maybe everyone can go and get hold of a secondhand copy. But that's a that's an excellent recommendation to end on. Thank you so much, Emma. This has been fun. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. I think all our listeners will be running out to buy Learned by Heart, which is published this month, and get copies of the Furies uh, anthology if they haven't already. So thank you so much for joining us. Bye now. Thanks a lot. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's wonderful guest, Emma Donoghue, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.